You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 90 of the Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Hoover, and I am not joined by any of my co-hosts today. They are, they're on strike. But today, I am joined by Rebecca Lamb, a cultural anthropology and developmental sociology undergrad at Vry University, Amsterdam. Rebecca, it is a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing this morning? Well, for you, it's the afternoon. Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm really excited that you have invited me to go on. I think this is really cool. Excellent. And so you are currently in the Netherlands now, correct? Yeah. So I'm in the Netherlands. I'll be flying back to spend Christmas with my family in Vermont in a couple of days. But right now I'm still in Amsterdam. Excellent. We'll get on to your uh, education here a little bit in the episode. But so you are in undergraduate, correct? Yeah, so I'm an undergrad student, but I'm a little bit of an untraditional student. So I've done a little bit of ethnography here and there, and I've gotten to do some research in some really cool situations. And it's turned into really cool stuff that my professors are just as excited about as I am. So it's a really fun thing, but definitely not the traditional standard undergrad, I think. Gotcha. Well, growing up, like what were your first experiences in anthropology? Like, did you know what anthropology was or archaeology, linguistics, anything like that? Or were you kind of, did you gravitate towards like a science subject? Like were you a dinosaur kid, a history buff, or, you know, one of those nature nerds? So my dad growing up, he's a veterinarian, but he actually got his bachelor's degree in history and then went on to vet school. And so it's always been like, history has always been a huge thing for me, especially ancient history and archaeology. And it just kind of spiraled out of control from there where like, I wanted to know everything about everything. So especially with cultural anthropology, I was like, why are so many people, you know, different from me? And I wanted to know all of the things. And so it just spiraled out of control with like bouncing from hyper-focus to hyper-focus. I had that Egyptology kid as a book, the gold one that everyone like, Covet. Oh, yes, with the scarab in the center. I had that. Yes, exactly they had all those about. books. They had like Egyptology and like fairyology. I got super and into dragonology. Yeah. Yeah, those books were so great. But the Egyptology one was probably my favorite, or the Pirates one. Pirates was another hyper focus of mine when I was a kid. I was obsessed. And so it just spiraled into wanting to know everything and like not just, you know, know the facts like history, but like to have that deep like ingrained understanding that I think anthropology gives you. Absolutely. I think it was kind of weird that they would put like an Egyptology book alongside the dragonology, the fairyology, kind of like, doesn't it seem like to mysticize Egyptology a little bit by putting it like those are its colleagues? See, it does, but they also had like pirateology and whatever. I don't, I don't know who made those books. I, I went looking for them in my dad's house in my attic, I was convinced that we had kept them because we had a lot of my books from my childhood. I can't find them anywhere. I'm a little heartbroken about it. Those books are so cool. I, I do think like there is this kind of level of like mystifying, like that when you think like something so far back, it's a little bit mind blowing that you're like, whoa, <laughs> that was so long ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So was there a, uh favorite like time period of yours when in growing up like with your kind of passion for history like was there a certain time period or a certain subject that you were very that you really gravitated towards 
I actually was obsessed with mythology. I loved learning mythology and religion. I won't say mythology entirely because it started with like Greek mythology, which I think a lot of people go into like a Greek mythology phase. But it started with that. And then it started bridging out into Celtic mythology and Celtic lore. My dad's Irish. So that was really interesting to me to learn all this stuff. And like these little stories that I grew up with and transferring that into, oh, that's actually, you know, like a route from like way back, you know, when, and then it turned into this whole like practice that we have now in our family that we've just created and turned into a thing. And so for me, that was like, I, you know, Norse mythology. And then I went further and I started learning about Hinduism and that's so complicated. I can't even begin to, you know, I started on it and I was like, Oh my God, I have to take a break. And then I, you know, (laughs) Hinduism, I felt like I was learning so much in so little time. It was so fun. But yeah, religion and mythology. And then I started really focusing on like folk religion because I kind of really enjoy that. So gotcha. How would you, how would you describe folk religion for our audience? Oh, folk religion, I would say tends to be a blend of both cultural and like beliefs that the you know, religious body of the time. So like the primary religious source, like, so it could be Catholicism or Christianity or Islam or whatever. And that blends with local cultural practices that are necessarily within that secular practice. And so, but yeah, so they blend together and then they create this kind of new, interesting thing. And I think that's really cool. Excellent. Awesome. Awesome. Well, on top of that, kind of like continuing on this thread of your childhood, you belong to the Wabanaki Confederacy. And what is the Wabanaki Confederacy? And, and did that background influence your curiosity in history and anthropology even further? Yeah. So the Wabanaki Confederacy is a confederacy of tribes in northeastern woodlands. So I specifically belong to the Abenaki tribe, but there are four other tribes outside of that. So, And I also have Haudenosaunee descent. So it's kind of vague and misty. And a lot of the issues with that is that that's tracked through a matrilineal line. And unfortunately, I only have a male ancestor that I know of for sure. It's a very fascinating story where he was born in Canada and was arrested in Canada and then fled to the U.S. and changed his name. And so (laughs) it's been a bit difficult trying to track down relatives to that specific ancestor to try and figure out what tribe specifically within the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So the Wabanaki Confederacy is another tribe. Um, around that region, native to Canada, Quebec, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, that general kind of area is where Massachusetts as well. So there are some Abenaki. So that's kind of the main area that we're settled in. And yeah, I think that had a huge influence. My mother is a lot darker skinned than I am, and so are my siblings. And so culturally, I had this kind of understanding of like, oh, like, we're the same. And also we're different. And my mom always, I was, grew up very disconnected from my culture. My mom always made sure that we knew that we were Abenaki and that we were proud of that, but we never really knew beyond that. And so I've just recently started reconnecting with that and I've loved doing it. And it's been incredibly powerful to kind of reconnect with your tribal ancestors and, you know, to see these powerful people from, you know, centuries ago that, and be able to relate to them. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people can relate to that. That's fascinating. I've never in, in my, I know like most of the Plains tribes, cause that's where, you know, my tribe's from. So I'm very familiar with that, but like, I don't know anything really about 
the Northeast, like I know like the Delaware, I know the Haudenosaunee and Tuscarora, like very little. So in kind of going over your outline, I was like, oh, I've never heard of this one. I did like a lot. I went on down a Google rabbit hole, uh, learning more about the Wabanaki, which was just fascinating. So excellent. And, you know, why did you end up deciding to pursue an undergraduate degree in anthropology? Did you have any anthropology courses offered in history? Like what exposed you to anthropology? So this is actually kind of a funny story. I took a gap year after I graduated high school because I wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. I was going to major in gender studies or journalism. And the idea was to kind of go into an advocacy role through either of those degrees. But there had been an error. (laughs) Um, I did dual enrollment in high school. And so I took college courses while I was in high school and I got both high school and college credit for that. But there was an error with the system when my transcripts were submitted. And so my dual enrollment transcripts were never submitted. So to every single college that I applied to, it looked like I didn't have enough credits. So I didn't get into a single school because they were like, why are you applying? You haven't graduated. And I was like, oh my gosh. And they were like, well, it's a huge process to appeal that kind of stuff after the date. And they have like all these rules. And I was just like so fed up. I just kind of threw my hands in the air and said, I'm not doing it. So I took a gap year um, and I worked with a gap year program and I got to move to Shanghai and I lived there for a couple months and I went to a language school there. And while I was there, I got the opportunity to do like a little baby ethnography. So I did ethnographic research on mental health in China and kind of the cultural, you know, ideas surrounding mental illness and, you know, mental health and all that. And so that was really cool to, you know, it wasn't a big research thing. It was a kind of a tiny little baby. I got a taste of it though. So I was, oh, I love doing ethnography. I love getting to sit there and talk to people and do research. And this is so much fun. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And so I said, okay, how do I do that forever? And they said, be an anthropologist. I said, hell yeah. So I applied to schools and then Excellent. That's really fascinating. So you went to Shanghai for a gap year and you learned Mandarin? Yeah. So on the spot? Well, no, I had taken it in high school. I had taken Mandarin one and two in high school. And then, but I, for some reason, my teacher never taught us characters. We only learned how to write in pinyin, which is writing it with English letters and the tones written on it. And so that was a huge struggle when I moved to Shanghai was learning to read the characters that was really difficult for me. But other than that, I, you know, got fairly close to fluent in a fairly short amount of time because I had that language background and then I, you know, lived the language and I spoke it every day. And, you know, I lived with a host family and they didn't speak English. And so I used Mandarin every day with, you know, even the smallest conversations. It, you know, there was never, I never got to use English. I remember somebody, family friend of mine whose daughter had lived in Shanghai or something, she had told me like, oh, it's such an international city. Everyone speaks English there. She had never been to Shanghai. And that is not the truth, at least where I was. I think there's some areas that are like more populated by immigrants and expats that are more comfortable with English. But where I was, nobody spoke English. And so you had you had to get good fast (laughs) speaking Mandarin. Fair enough. And what's uh, what's one of your most memorable experiences in Shanghai? I remember I went, so there's this, (laughs) there's this water town it's like 13 kilometers outside of shanghai you can reach it through the metro and it's an ancient water town it's called chibao not to be confused with chipao which is an article of clothing (laughs) 
but it's it, this ancient water town. There's tea houses and there's markets where you can get all these traditional foods. And I went there several times. I went there once with my roommate and just had the best experiences I got because I had this thing where I would panic. And I, my teacher, who she was very funny, she would call it my Chinese panic, where she was like, you understand it. Just when people tr- start to talk to you, you get really nervous and you like just space out and you like forget everything. I was like, I can't even speak English if they tried to talk to me. I just get so like shy and scared. And that was the first time that I felt comfortable enough. I had like a 15, 20 minute conversation with the shop owner who owned a calligraphy shop. And that was like, oh, right. I do know Mandarin. I do know what I'm doing. I do know how to speak this language and I'm comfortable enough to speak it. And the guy was super sweet and his wife was super sweet as well, helping, you know, me out just you know because I would like I I'd miss a few words here and there and they'd immediately be like oh you know this is here here you go <laughs> and they were super sweet and super kind and like that was one of my favorite memories if I could like teleport anywhere in the world like right now I'd go to Chiba because it's just beautiful it's genuinely one of the loveliest cities you can go and experience really just like so much and it's so cool well awesome thank you for sharing that so why, why pursue an undergrad in Europe? Why didn't she want to go to college in the United States? Why did you have to go across the pond? Can I be honest with you? It was entirely financially motivated. Fair enough. <laughs> it, I pay, I think I paid like 7,800 euros for my yearly tuition this year. So I saved a lot of money by <laughs> pursuing an undergrad in Europe. My college fund lasted longer than a year. So gotcha. Yeah. That's like half, like seven grand was like a semester's worth of tuition for me in undergraduate. And that was a cheap school. So yeah. Yeah. My top choice school, which was Smith college, which is a wonderful school. It's my sister's alma mater, 10 out of 10. Like you have the opportunity to apply. It was like 75,000 a year. (laughs) Nope. Yeah. I was like, I can't, you know what? That's a great idea. I love that. You know, it's a great school. Obviously it's been, you know, my sister's a lot older than me. She's almost 17 years older than me, I think. So obviously there's a huge gap between (laughs) economically. I think tuition has increased drastically, but yeah, that was, I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> gotcha. And what universities were you looking at in Europe and were you looking specifically for anthropology programs? Um, so I was actually focused mainly on the city, which is I, not the best way to choose <laughs> a school. But I had gone before I had gone to Shanghai, I'd spent a month traveling around Europe and I'd gone to Amsterdam and I just absolutely fell in love with the city. I felt like it was kind of the perfect, I grew up in a town with less than 400 people. So it felt like a city that wasn't really a city. It was, you know, a little bit of both. And I found that really exciting that there was that division. And so when I was in Shanghai, my roommate, you know, kept talking to me and telling me like, oh, like you love Amsterdam. You know, she would ask me questions and I'd be like, oh, in Amsterdam, because I just, you know, loved it there. And so when I got back and I was applying to schools again, she was like, why don't you apply to some universities in the Netherlands? And I was like, oh, and she was like, you should apply to universities in Amsterdam. And so (laughs) I was like, okay. And so I applied and got into the VU and the VU has the highest ranked anthropology program or had, I don't know if it still does in the Netherlands because 
at the time I was unaware that most of the rank, your ranking drastically increases when you internationalize and switch your program to English, the ranking automatically goes up. And the VU was the first university to switch to English for that program. And so that was like, oh, <laughs> but it was still, you know, I got in and I still really like going here. I still really enjoy the university. So Excellent. Well, on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up the first segment of episode 90. We'll be right back with Rebecca Lamb. And welcome back to episode 90 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Rebecca Lamb. So Rebecca, what are you studying in undergraduate? Like, What's your research on? So currently my research is on Abenaki tattoo practices and the kind of revival of that within the tribe and seeing how traditional Native American tattooing has grown and blossomed into this new kind of thing. And it's really cool. I'm really excited about it. Excellent. So how did you get interested in this topic? Like, did your parents have tattoos? Did members of the tribe have tattoos? Like how, what got you, what got you into this? So my, no one in my family besides my sister has tattoos. I am actually covered in tattoos and I have been for several years. I've got you know, two sleeves going on and working on my legs right now. And I'm, you know, fairly covered. And so people are a little taken aback sometimes when they see me, I've got, you know, five facial piercings and, you know, lots of tattoos. And so I started getting into Native American tattoo revival because I was like, this is so cool. Why don't we talk about this enough? And then it spiraled into, I don't know a single, you know, like I could name most tribes in the Northeastern region, but I don't know if any of them practice tattooing. And then I stumbled upon Geo Neptune. Geo um, was Maine's first trans elected official. They use they, them pronouns and identify as two spirit. And they are also Wabanaki. And Geo has traditional facial tattoos. And so that spiraled a whole thing of, you know, if one Wabanaki person has it, like it's all kind of the same cultural root. So they've all got it, you know, there's got to be someone that knows about this. And so I went on this whole like deep dive and I finally found a woman who's, her name is Melody Brooke and she is my mentor. So she is a traditional tribal tattooer and she also works with a bunch of museums in Vermont. And she's uh, mainly just a native arts, you know, person. And she's really involved in the El New Band of the Abenaki. She's pretty high up there. And so that's, you know, my connection to it was I, you know, got in contact with her because I was like, hey, this is this is thing. And she was like, yes, it's a thing. It's been a thing for years. Nobody talks about it, though. And I was like, oh, I'm about to talk about it so much. <laughs> Excellent. And what did like contact era Abenaki tattoos look like? Where were they placed? What kind of designs are you talking about? If you can share that, of course. Yeah. So there's an account of people having multiple animals on the cheeks. There's accounts of tattoos on the chin. Tattoos were used not only as medicine and they would be put into, you know, on specific areas to deaden a nerve. And so then it would solve, in, you know, pain, but it would also be used to show your bravery and your beauty. And it would also just be used for entirely cosmetic. <laughs> it would be like, oh, like, you know. It is something nowadays that you have to earn. So you have to earn your markings and you have to say, okay, like ancestors tell me, you know, you have to wait for a sign that will tell you. And so it's a whole process. Hopefully I'll be getting my markings when I return home, but it's a little bit of a process. So I only have three weeks when I'm home for Christmas. So, and then I'll fly back, but I'm home for much longer in the summer. So I'll either get them in the winter or this winter or in the summer. 
Excellent. And what about surrounding nations to the uh, Abenaki? Do they also have tattoo markings? Yeah. So culturally, we are Algonquian. So like that's the cultural root of Wabanaki and most Northeastern Woodlands tribes rely culturally on kind of the Algonquian you know, root. And so they have tattoos everywhere. If you look at Mohawk tribes, there's Iroquois tattoos. You know, people have their whole faces and there's Haudenosaunee warrior. Haudenosaunee and Iroquois, I feel like I need to clarify, are the same thing. The Iroquois was the French word and the Haudenosaunee is the word that they used to refer to themselves as. So, but you see these portraits of Haudenosaunee warriors covered in these massive tattoos, you know, from face to, you know, waist and even below. So people used to get their entire chests tattooed and it would be a huge, I mean, that's a huge process to go through nowadays, even with the, you know, tattoo machines that we have now. But before then it was used, you would either prick the skin individually, like, you know, go one at a time. Traditionally, we would use gar teeth, alligator gar, the fish. Obviously, we use needles now because it's a lot more sterile and just, you know. Safety first. (laughs) Right, of course. But they would use alligator guard teeth and a mixture of charcoal and water. And then they'd, you know, individually prick it into the skin or they would cut it, cut the skin and then rub the charcoal and water mixture into the wound to create the tattoo. And so, you know, there's accounts that like, you know, they would do it. And, you know, people would do it and then they'd be they'd feel really sick for a couple of days because your body, you know, has gone through a lot of trauma in those situations. Nowadays, we use needles and we hand poke them, but we do it a lot safer because we're, you know, cultural continuity. Absolutely. Of course, of course. And so before beginning this research, you're working on like a like a paper for undergraduate or is this all? This is my bachelor's thesis. Okay, excellent. Right. Prior to really diving in, in, into this research, what were your previously held assumptions or perspectives regarding Northeastern Indigenous tattooing practices? I genuinely didn't really know it existed. It was something that I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to. I knew Inuit tattooing was very common and you know was practiced for centuries and then was almost phased out and then was brought back again. What I didn't expect to see was that a lot of Inuit tattooing is very similar to our tattooing which I thought was really interesting. It's not entirely, you know, you can't say they're the same, but they do have some similarities, which I find really interesting. Um, Overall, I had no idea that, you know, the Northeastern tribes practiced this. I didn't, you know, I think almost every indigenous nation around the world has some form of body modification. And I think it's really cool to see that, you know, kind of explored further with my own tribe and within my own cultural roots. That's awesome. I know I've been bugging and we'll get on to Aaron later. I've been always asking Aaron every now and then. I'm like, did you find any evidence for potting tattooing? He's like, dude, I tell you, there's accounts of it, but we haven't seen any illustrations. And I'm like, ah, come on, man. Give me something. Um, Cause there's not that much. I know on the plains, there's not, not many nations practiced it. It was kind of like American bottom Southwest, everyone around us. So it kind of feels strange that everyone around us is doing tattooing, but we're not. So the Wichita's did it though. They looked like little, I think, like little raccoons or bears because they made these like black circles under their eyes. Oh, that I can't. That I imagine that must be so painful. I'm a little bit of a baby, and so that <laughs> hand poking tattooing. Now that I've like got more, you know, I'm doing apprenticeship ethnography, and so I'm learning. I'm learning as you know, 
learning by doing. And so that's been really cool to be, you know, I only know two people, two other people who do the traditional tattooing currently, but the whole process is about, you know, it's supposed to hurt. It's about withstanding pain and being strong and sitting through it. And so the, one of the key things is that if you don't sit through it in, you know, one session, if you tap out, then you never get to finish that tattoo. That's like a shame that you live with forever. And I was like, Oh geez, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> like that's, Obviously I'm not about to get a huge piece, but there's, you know, so much that goes into it that it's, you know, you have this tiny little tattoo that is hand poked one, you know, dot at a time. And it's, you know, there's two, you know, that takes two hours, but then there's, you know, two to three hours of ceremony before the tattoo even starts. That's, you know, it's a huge commitment. Absolutely. It kind of reminds me of that scene from Moana at the beginning when that uh, huge buff guy is about to get tattooed and there's just there like one little fish and he's just screaming about it. Is it almost over? They're like, nah, man, you're just beginning. Yeah, those tapping tattoos, I've, I consider myself lucky that I've never had one because I am an absolute baby and I think I would cry. If I ever had, I, you know, if presented with the opportunity, I'd be like, yeah, I'll totally do it. But I, I would not enjoy it. And so I'm a little glad that I haven't been presented with the opportunity for like that impulsive, like, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. I am covered in tattoos. But it's like, no, you're not. That's a whole different ballgame. Gotcha. Well, kind of like what are what are some of the big takeaways that you learned from this? Like what stands out to you as like these huge moments of realization through the course of your um, thesis? I think one thing that. I feel like was really kind of brushed aside is that Abenaki is not federally recognized. There's four bands recognized by the state of Vermont, but federally it's not recognized, which makes no sense because according to way before Abenaki have been petitioning for a long time for recognition. There was this argument that Abenaki were entirely non, you know, sedimentary people. So they constantly migrated so they didn't, act, you know, someone had said in 17 something or whatever, when Vermont was declared a state, the Abenaki never lived here. They just passed through here to hunt. So therefore, we don't need to give them, you know, any land. And so therefore, you know, this unceded land that did belong to the Abenaki and the Wabanaki was able to be taken. And so we've been fighting for centuries, but it makes no sense because, you know, people are like, oh, well, I thought they were, they all died in the 1800s. And I was like, up until the 1950s, you know, Abenaki women were being sterilized with the Vermont eugenics program. So that's, you know, you can't say that they weren't there when the government was actively acknowledging them and then actively, you know, committing an act of genocide against them. Right. But everyone's just pretending, you know, sweeping it under the rug. And I found it fascinating that like, there is this tenacity within, I, you know, I always say like indigenous people are like so resilient and there is this tenacity to preserve their culture that, you know, I'm so proud of that. Like so much has been lost, but that so much has been saved as well through like intense efforts of, we are not losing this. You know, people are very determined to maintain their culture and to keep it. And I think that's so important because that's how you lose terrible things. You know, I've been able to connect with a language keeper within my tribe. And that's been an absolutely amazing situation that I can text him and say, what's the word for this? And I just learn little bits and pieces of grammar and vocab. And he's like, oh, we have classes you can take. And, you know, 13 people are fluent in Western Abenaki and Eastern Abenaki is extinct. 
And so this preservation is so important and not just preservation, but also, you know, the cultural continuity and keeping it alive and letting it grow and become, you know, what it's going to become in the 21st century, because obviously we're not going to be the same as we were in the 17th and 18th century, but we're allowed to grow and we're allowed to be different, but we also need to maintain, you know, our traditional practices and teachings because they're so important to us intrinsically. Absolutely. That's a really good continuation. The episode before this episode 89, we uh, interviewed the two Pawnee language directors and we had like a whole whole segment with linguistic anthropology and language awakening. So that's fantastic to hear you say that in episode 90. So um, <laughs> excellent, like loving that. And I don't know, I think it's just fascinating. Like one, you know, kind of talking about the whole recognition thing that a lot of like East Coast tribes are state recognized because, and they're like the first people that got in contact. And also some of the first nations that helped English, French and, English, and uh, Spanish settlers. And they're not even being recognized in the 21st century as independent, sovereign nations, nations. which I think yeah. is just, it's like, come on. It's the argument of blood quantum, which is once again, this huge colonizer notion. But even if you go back far enough to with, you know, I still meet blood quantum standards by, you know, set by the U.S. government, but I belong to two different tribes. And so therefore I don't technically meet blood quantum because they're not the same tribe. It's like, this is so stupid. Quantum is blood quantum. It's one eighth to become enrolled in most federal tribes. It's like, one and that's eighth recent. Is yeah. like, I know, I know my tribe went from the Pawnee went from one quarter to one eighth in like 2005. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm lucky because my tribe isn't federally recognized. So they're like, you meet blood quantum by our rules. <laughs> They're like, we kind of get our own rules. Like, obviously you have to, it's a whole process to be, gain membership to the El New Band. You have to prove ancestry, but you also have to be really involved in the community and, you know, do something to further, you know, you know, help the community and be involved. And so you're voted in by a tribal council. So the tribal council sits and votes on whether or not they're going to allow you in. It doesn't matter if you meet blood quantum, they're going to make that decision, you know, Either way, and I think that's like the most stressful because it's like, what if someone doesn't like me? <laughs> it's you know. I think that's a great way to do it, though. You know, getting rid of like you said that very much colonial and, and genocidal policy of blood quantum, but allowing tribes to do it themselves. I know uh, the Shoshone. If if you enroll Shoshone, but you have you know Indian blood from a different nation, they allow you just to add it all up, and that's your Shoshone blood quantum. Oh, see, that's yeah, that's it's that same idea. But we don't rely heavily on blood quantum because there was so much heavily missionarization of the Abenaki. They aligned with Jesuit missionaries that came from France. And there's lots of stories. I have so many stories that I could tell about that where people were like, oh, they all converted. And it's like they didn't actually convert. They just wanted the metal crosses because metal to us, you wear it on certain points in your body that are considered, you know, ports where bad spirits can come in and the metal reflects them. And so there's an account that says like the Abenaki don't like the British because they give them wooden crosses, but the French give them metal crosses and they like those. And so you see these Abenaki art, they're called dragonfly crosses. And so they look like, you know, crosses that someone would wear, but in reality, it's just dragonflies that are made to look like that. And so that's another oh, example of this like preserved, awesome. yeah, this tenacious, like we're going to preserve our culture, but we're also not going to let you, you know kill us for not converting. So we're going to pretend to convert, but we're going to keep these cultural practices going. 
But there was so much intermarriage. It's so confusing. I mean, genetically, it's just such a mishmash. The Northeast in general is people from all over Europe and then some random, you know, it, you run into people and they're like, oh, yeah, like my great great grandma was blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know how, you know, my great great grandma was a Cherokee princess. That's what everyone always says. And it's like, that's not, there was this huge, I recently did some research on it. That was a huge like government propaganda thing to like deny Cherokee land <laughs> to do that. And so I think there's this concept of like, you know, there's this tenacity that like we're going to stay here and we're going to preserve this and we're going to do what we can to survive. And I don't think, you know, the ancestors of people who did so much to survive need, should be punished for, you know, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think on that note, we're going to go ahead and end segment two. We'll be right back with uh, Rebecca Lamb on episode 90. And we're back with episode 90 with Rebecca Lamb. So continue on our conversation about blood quantum specifically and kind of a larger picture of one of these colonial and genocidal practices. How... In your undergraduate studies, have you investigated or, or dealt with this this recent movement? Well, not necessarily recent, um, but this movement gaining traction and like decolonizing um, academia. Um, I think it's fascinating, honestly. Like some of my beginning courses um, as a first year were all about you know decolonizing anthropology and can it be done? And this is a whole ethical debate because anthropology has such terrible colonial roots. Um, obviously anthropology, the entire, you know, genesis of modern anthropology was, you know, this idea that we can, if we can justify that, you know, these people in these places are stupider than white people, then we can justify going in and taking their resources. And so there's, I think there's a bit of academic guilt um, that a lot of people feel and they're like, how can we fix this? And I think uh, there's not quite, you know, people went into it super gung ho and were like, we're going to, you know, we're going to fix our problems. And then it was really, I really felt like, you know, <laughs> like, I feel like we're really lacking, like understanding the root. And it's like, we know that, you know, historically anthropology sucked, um, <laughs> but how do we, you know, not suck in the future? And I feel like that was completely, you know, We've gotten to step one, which was acknowledge bad practices, but there's, you know, 17 other steps that have to come with that of, you know, putting into practice better tools. And I think that's a huge thing that can be seen in museums. It's whether or not, you know, an exhibit is there. Henrietta Litchie. Oh, I am probably pronouncing that wrong. I can't remember her last name totally. She's a Dutch anthropologist and she's in charge of a lot of museums and she writes about colonial spectacle and this idea, you know, in the 19th century, all these exhibits were created for people to be like, Ooh, and ah, at these, you know, savages from different cultures. But how much of that has actually changed when you look at what is exhibited now in museums, how much of it is, Oh my God, this is so weird and so crazy. And so I got this really awesome opportunity last year. I got to do a focused research project. I got to do an analysis on, um, the ex exhibition of Papuan coral wars. I'm probably pronouncing that terribly, and I apologize ahead of time to any Papuan <laughs> viewers and listeners. This is just, you know. And so Papuan coral they're ancestral figures that are made out of the skulls of the dead, and they're heavily decorated, and they're used to channel that spirit. And they would be channeled, and they're currently don't, they're not practiced in Papua. They're not, it's not a thing that people do anymore, mostly because of missionary, missionary work 
within the region. But it's something that I think people, you know, when you go to a museum and you look at the skull of, you know, the heavily decorated skull of an indigenous person, what are your thoughts and how can the museum itself work to challenge the thoughts that people, you know, the thoughts and prejudices that people already come into the museum with? And so that was really, you know, funded, you know, it's a huge ethical issue and it's a very complicated issue. How do you go into this situation and say, okay, like (laughs) we have this object that we want to exhibit. How do we keep people from going, oh my God, that's so weird. And there's going to still be people that do it, but how do we make sure that like we're challenging that thought process that people have? And that's heavily complicated issue, but so fun to talk about and so interesting to discuss. Are there, I guess, like if you're learning about this in undergrad, because I never learned about any of this kind of stuff at an American Anthro program, you know, I, I guess kind of starting off like one, I mean, what's the ratio of like European students versus non-European students present within within your program? And then two, who's teaching these classes? Are these European-born folks? Are these in non-European indigenous people from like Africa, the Americas, and, and Southeast Asia? Like, who's who's teaching these courses and who's taking them? So I'm in the international track. There is a Dutch language track of my program, but I'm in the international track, which is taught all in English. It's for the most part is European students. I, there are a couple Americans that I know of, but mostly European. And there are, I'm trying to think if there's any one, I think almost everyone is European or American in my program. And most of my professors are white Europeans. I'm not going to say that they're, you know, completely, you know, for that specific class that I took, that was taught by a Moroccan professor of Moroccan descent. And he was, you know, he loved that kind of stuff. Museum ethics he used to be a curator in Utrecht. And so he worked on all that stuff. And so he was able to kind of, you know, put that perspective of being a person of color living in the Netherlands. I won't say that like my professors are totally, you know, have totally got this down. I think this is totally, you know, something new for them. And sometimes my professors will bring up the concept of decolonizing and you'll, you see them kind of like groan internally, like, ugh, I, this again. And it's like, yes, this again, we're going to talk about it until we have beaten it like a dead horse. And we fully, you know, have a complex understanding. And I'm kind of the person that goes in there and is super annoying. And I was like, well, actually that's not true. And well, well, actually, you know, I remember we were talking about um, Malinowski, who's this, you know, the pioneer of participant observation ethnography and, you know, modern day anthropology. And, you know, my professor was like, yeah. And then his diary was published after he died and he wasn't that, and he was, and he was, you know, we found out some not cool stuff about him. And I was like, let's talk about the fact that he was racist and a sexual predator and all this terrible stuff about Malinowski that was revealed through his diaries. We can't just like tack that on at the end. We have to like fully analyze why he thought he had that power in the first place. And because if you don't fully understand that you might go into, you know, whatever situation that you are conducting your research on, and obviously different people come from different backgrounds, but if you're a white person going into, you know, an indigenous community and saying like, Oh, like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, better because I'm white and you might not even recognize that you think that, but you know, that might just be a conception that you have because, you know, you have a cell phone and you have Facebook and you know, all this, and these people, you know, live off the land and it's just different culturally. And so I think sometimes people 
like, I'm one of those people that's like, we really need to understand this. And I'm going to, you know, rant about this until the day is over. You know, (laughs) I always joke around with my professors. I talk to them. I talked to one of them at the beginning of the year this year. And I was like, I'm back to terrorizing the anthropology department. (laughs) Because I'm constantly like, hey, what about this? And hey, what about that? And, you know, my professors, for the most part, are very, like, willing to discuss this kind of stuff and willing to talk about it. But sometimes, especially with, like, I hate to say it, but, like, sometimes with, like, the white male professors, they're like, oh, well, you know, they give that kind of smile that's, like, a little kid, you know. And it's like, oh, you don't know that I'm about to go to war because I have so many opinions. Gotcha. Yeah, I know it's, like, coming to terms with some of what the older anthropologists did, the ones that we read, Boaz, Malinowski, and others, it's like people in our discipline are just like, oh, well, that's just kind of like what it was for the time. And it's like, isn't our whole discipline about like breaking social norms and not justifying like how the the concepts of the time, like how do you use this as, as a justification for some of these older folks? And it's just like that that disconnect. I don't know. Are you part of the American Anthropological Association? I'm not because I'm not based in the u.s so Fair they were enough. like do you want to join and i was like yeah and then they were like you can't do that because you're from a european university and i was like darn well there so. was they, they recently a couple of older silverback archaeologists you know what i'm talking about they yeah. wrote a letter against the decolonization work and kind of like what we did back in the 70s and 80s like you know we did all this social justice work this is so grossly unfair it's like no you're helping out like your friends, like you're, you're making sure like liberals and white women had a space and you didn't necessarily care about anyone else. Like, were you guys marching with AIM? No. Were you marching with Martin Luther King? Maybe, but like you guys were primarily within white organizations advocating for, you know, Euro-American descent rights within the country. Like you can't, you can't sit there and tell us like you did everything when clearly we have like 40 years showing you haven't done enough. Yeah. I think that one of my favorite, like, statements is my dad is a huge, you know, a very large leftist and has always been. And he spent, you know, most of his college years in UC Santa Monica protesting the Vietnam War. And he would always joke, like, I never got arrested, but that's because I could run. (laughs) I could run like a mother, you know. And he can outrun the next guy. Yeah. He's like, I can run. So I, you know, got away from the cops every time, but he got hit with water cannons and all this stuff. And he was like, he's a boomer. And he was always like, you know, people are always like, oh, like, you know, people always say like, well, they don't know better. And he was like, well, I'm from that generation and I know better. So obviously, like, that's not true. Like, that was my dad's, you know, they're were not racist people, you know, back then. Not everyone was trash. We just assume everyone was trash. And that was a conversation that my dad had. He was like, yeah. Did I know people older than me who sucked? Yes. Did I also protest alongside people older than me who really understood this? You know, my dad lived in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis. And, you know, where a lot of people kind of shied away, my dad, you know, his roommate um, contracted HIV a lot of his friends passed away and my dad was there, you know, walking hand in hand and holding these people's hands. And, you know, I joke that my dad was the token straight friend (laughs) because he was, you know, but you know, these were people he loved and cared about. And he was like, they were also people, like, even if they weren't my friends, you know, he was like, that was the important thing. They were people. And you know, I think that's an important thing is that we kind of lose sight of that in the name, in the pursuit of knowledge or whatever. I think sometimes we forget that we're studying other people. And 
I think when you can recognize the humanity of someone is when you can do their the best work and do them the most justice in your work. And it's kind of, it's really frustrating sometimes. I do get really, really frustrated sometimes when I'm reading Malinowski. I have a copy of his diary and I have it like highlighted and, you know, dog-eared. And I, you know, it took me like almost a full year to get through it just because reading it made me nauseous because the way he referred to women, the way he referred to children, you know, just the terrible, terrible things he said. And it was like, we really need to do better. And like, he didn't see these people as human. He, He referred to them regularly as monkeys. And so, you know, how do we do better? And that's the whole point of decolonizing is how do we do better? You know, because yeah. we've, d- we haven't done well in the past. So we obviously need to do a whole lot better. And I think the number one rule is involving more people from, you know, all over the world, involve more people of color, involve more people from different backgrounds, and different ethnicities and different, you know, origins. And that's how you're going to get the most complete, you know, solid framework for what you build. No, I mean, that's excellent point. Excellent point. I know, uh, me and some of the tippos on the planes who joke about writing a book about medieval peasant life, just kind of flipping the script. Let's have a bunch of indigenous people talk about European peasantry for a little bit. Just be as nasty as we can. Like, look at these idiots. They don't even bathe. Look how unclean they are. And I, I yeah, I completely, uh, absolutely vibe with everything that you're talking about when it comes to all this decolonial um, method, right? And, and just acknowledging, you know, that's kind of been a theme in this past second, this past segment is just like, acknowledge it, acknowledge how bad the discipline was and like how bad some of these people were. Like this isn't, you know, just because Boaz was Jewish doesn't mean he was necessarily like the best when it came to understanding all, all these cultures. Like, and he developed the American four fields approach. Great. Um, but there's a legacy with that. When you make American archeology span about studying human behavior, not history, and we see that legacy and how the American archaeological record is dug up. It's like it's not it's not for history. It's not for the benefit of the indigenous folks. It's purely for understanding human behavior and using it as a case study for a worldwide population. It's like that's not there's problems with that. Yeah. And it's also like what why is the rationale? I, I remember having a conversation with someone They were talking about there were these caves out west that were being auctioned off that were an indigenous burial site. I don't know if you heard about that. And so I was like, well, they could be used for research. And I was like, why do we need to research? Like, that's the traditional burial site. Why do we need to dig those people up? What's the point? And I was like, okay, I'll go dig up, you know, I'll go to the graveyard and start digging people up. You know, I'll go dig up grandma. And they're like, well, you can't do that. And I was like, well, I want to research her. (laughs) It's like, well, you can't. And I was like, why are you not understanding this? Like, they're like, that's my grandma. And I was like, no, exactly. That's, those are those people's ancestors. Like, you can't do that. <laughs> exactly. And there's laws protecting, you know, Euro-American cemeteries and burials, but you don't see people in our American archaeology upset about those laws. They're all upset about NAGPRA. That's the one that gets in the way of research, not everything else. So I Oh, totally. And it's like those people are still right there. You could just go talk to them. You don't have to dig them up to ask. Exactly. Well... I've really enjoyed having you on. So before before we end the show, Rebecca, what are a couple sources, these books, articles, videos, or whatever, that you would recommend for anyone interested um, in the topics that we discussed today? 
So I would definitely recommend kind of a beginner would be Archaeology Inc. on Instagram. I think they're a great kind of resource if you're something, if you're interested in tattooing and the history of tattooing, you want to know more, but you don't kind of know where to start and you want kind of a light version of it. I think they're an awesome account to follow. A book I would recommend is Drawing by Great Needles by Aaron Dieter Wolf and Carol Diaz Granados. So I would definitely recommend those two sources for anyone interested in learning more about tattooing. Excellent. Yeah, Aaron Dieterwolf, early, early uh, interviewee of the Life Ruins podcast. So we're always excited to have guests uh, refer back to that. That's awesome. And uh, where can our listeners find you on social media? So my Instagram is appearing academic. That's really the only social media I have currently. But yeah, you can totally check me out there. I do a lot of blog work. So a lot of it's blog stuff. Some of it's talking about tattooing, some of it's talking about language, some of it's talking about disability advocacy. It's a little bit of everything. So if you're interested in that, check it out. Excellent. Thank you, Rebecca. And for our listeners, you can find the book recommendations and her contact information in the episode description below, wherever you are listening to this podcast. And of course, we have to ask the famous question, Rebecca, if given the chance, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Rebecca Lamb. You can find her on Instagram at Appearing Academic. Once again, you can find that in the episode description below. And everyone, please, please, please be sure to rate and review the podcast with whatever platform you're listening on it helps us know what we're doing how our listener engagement is if you're listening on the all shows feed please go ahead and subscribe to our actual show um, just so we can get those numbers a lot easier and with that we are out thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. What kind of ink do politicians get? I don't know. Aristotats. <laughs> yeah, pretty bad. All right, with that, we're really out. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.